Praise be to God that He in His kindness has seen fit to bring us together again to worship Him on His day. We come now to the preaching of His Word. Let us stand together. We'll be reading from verse 15 through verse 30 of chapter 11 of the book of Acts. You'll see in your sermon notes there are verses of focus from verses 19 through to 26. Beloved of God, please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So here we are, chapter 11 of the book of Acts, seeing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in and through His church, continuing the work that He had done in His life and ministry when He walked the earth, doing now through His body, His church. So you recall after Stephen was martyred in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, that beautiful and vibrant church that God raised up after Pentecost. What a beautiful and vibrant church. All the work we saw there going on in Jerusalem. Well, God scattered it through the persecution that began in chapter 7. We see in verse 4 of chapter 8 these words, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. 
So we've been seeing that described in some detail since that time. Since then, what have we seen? Well, Luke has described Philip's evangelism to the Samaritans and to the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch. You recall Simon the sorcerer, perhaps, from that encounter there in Samaria. And then we have Saul's conversion and baptism described to us there in Damascus. We see after that Saul's Damascus preaching and then remember his escape. And then his visit, that's Saul, his visit to Jerusalem. And then his escape, it's a theme there in Saul's life, his escape to Tarsus where we will find him still there in Cilicia in the, the northeastern coast of the Mediterranean. From there, Luke took us through Peter's widespread widespread ministry throughout Judea, throughout the nation of Israel, including at Lydda and Sharon. Remember, Aeneas was healed. And then at Joppa, Tabitha's resurrected, you recall. And then Peter's ministry at Caesarea, a five-part look there at the Pentecost for the Gentiles. The good news of the kingdom of God coming directly to the Gentiles. They don't have to be Jews first. Cornelius and his household saved and baptized. And then last week, we saw this first great church controversy. There was a smaller church controversy, yes, that took place in chapter 6, remember? The Hellenist Jews who had become Christians complaining that their widows had not been served properly. Church was strengthened through that dealing with that controversy. And we saw last week that first great controversy arose out of the mouths of those who were called, quote, of the circumcision, unquote. What did they believe? Well, you may have been taught to believe that they believed in a legalistic approach to God and that they had been legalists in Judaism. It's not necessarily true. It seems more likely they're just confused. They're actually trying to be faithful Jews. They are just trying to be faithful. Hey, Gentiles need to be circumcised. They need to be brought into the faith this way. But it is legalism in their confusion. They believed you had to be a Gentile first in order to then become a a Jew first in order to then become a Christian. And God granted grace to Peter to humbly respond to them and just retell the story. And God granted grace to those of the circumcision to be silenced and to really just repent and speak the truth. Oh, okay, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So here we are in that context. And Luke, by the Spirit's inspiration, changes gears again. Same overall theme, but no longer dealing with Peter. In today's text, Luke reminds us of the dispersion context. He takes us back to Stephen. And then takes us into the results of that dispersion, specifically focused in on this great first century church in Antioch. This great missionary church, Antioch. And so some questions uh, I hope that will help you Hear the sermon, consider yourself, consider our church, consider our world as you hear the sermon. How do you process painful and destructive upheavals? How do you prioritize life and how do you behave 
if you're caught up in the flow of mayhem associated with life upheavals. But this church maintained the same priorities, even in the midst of this great persecution and dispersion. Do we do the same thing? Or are we just fair-weather Christians? Next. What are the Lord's overarching purposes for bringing cultural upheaval and personal upheaval in your life? Who is He and what are His purposes? We see that in today's text. And, And it's still true. Next. Have you considered how do faith and repentance interact? This is important. This is important. If you don't believe that faith and repentance come together, your life will be confused as a Christian. We see it in today's text. Beautifully displayed. The reality of what faith and repentance look like as they travel together to us from heaven. Next. Do you want to be like Barnabas? I do. Not in every way, as we'll see. But we want to be like Barnabas. How can we become more like Barnabas? That's a big need. That's a big need. We have an encouragement deficit in our lives today. We are steeped in polarization and complaining and attacking and dehumanizing thinking. So quick to judge, so quick to attack. How can we become more like Barnabas to be encouragers? Glad when we see God's grace. Happy to leave behind a place of comfort and go try to be an encourager. We'll learn. How can we be like Barnabas? And what is your understanding of the interrelatedness, not only of faith and repentance, but then the life of repentance that goes on to worship and the engaging with preaching And the fruit of sanctification, does your life reflect a biblical perspective here? Do people call you simply one like Christ? Do people describe you as a follower of Christ? And we'll see what that looked like in the life of this sweet church in Antioch for that year while they were there and the fruit that it created. That's why today's sermon is entitled, Let Us Be Called Christians. Let us be called Christians. So we'll look at the text. First of all, we'll see in verses 19 through 21 that a great number believed in Antioch. And we'll see the process that Luke takes us through getting us to that point. It's kind of a geographic progression. And next, we'll see that Barnabas goes and encourages them all. Great work of God had already been done. And Barnabas goes and just the fire gets brighter and bigger when he's there. And then we'll see Barnabas says, wait a minute, I need some help. And he goes and he gets salt. And we'll see what happens there, there for a year. They're worshiping together with the people, teaching and preaching, great numbers. And then this glorious description. The disciples are first called Christians. First called Christians there in Antioch at that time. Okay, so... Let's move into it. A great number believe in Antioch. I'll read verses 19 through 21 again. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, 
preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So I've got a little map there for you in your sermon notes. Printed uh, not as dark as I had hoped. But I, I think you can still make it out. So let's take a look at these locations. When you look there at your map, do you know where Phoenicia is in the modern world? It's basically that region there marked as Lebanon on your map. So it's the the far eastern shores of the Mediterranean. The Phoenician place was a place, a coastal place. And it was made up of city-states. We've talked about Tyre and Sidon. They were a part of Phoenicia. You can see that there on your map. And let's remember Jerusalem as well. If you look there where it says Israel, you can kind of make out the West Bank. You see the bottom of the letter B there on bank. That's basically where Jerusalem is located. So you're getting a sense of how they were dispersed and where they went. So they went into Phoenicia, we're told. They went to Cyprus. See that island there, Cyprus, a little bit south of Turkey, off the southern coast of Turkey. We'll bump into Cyprus again throughout the course of the book of Acts. So you see, these are real places with real people and real time frames that really happened. You won't find a more reliable history than the Bible. Next place we see is Antioch. Now, if you look at southern Turkey there, on kind of towards the eastern edge of southern Turkey, do you see that little kind of peninsula? It's not peninsula of water but a land peninsula that sticks out of Turkey and the western part of it is bordering the Mediterranean Sea and the eastern part of it there borders Syria. You see that little part that sticks down there? That's where Antioch is. Antioch is right there. Today Antioch is in that part of Turkey. That's where it is. So I I like to make those connections about where things were and where things are now in terms of the geopolitical changes. So I hope that helps us see geographically some things. Now, I also brought in Libya because who knows where Cyrene is, C-Y-R-E-N-E. You can mark it there. The, basically, the, essentially kind of the northern point there on, on, in Libya, uh, kind of near Egypt, <clears throat> where it comes, makes that northern curve there. Cyrene is up in that region. Okay, so, so Cyrene is modern Lib- Libya. So, from Jerusalem, Luke tells us they went to all these places. Okay? And that's a wide dispersion. And I want us to see that they were scattered but not dissuaded. And I think this makes for us one of the key points of dealing with upheavals, mayhem in our lives. They come in all different shapes and sizes. Uh, We looked today, did we not, in the Heidelberg Catechism uh, that he uh, will make whatever evils he sends upon us to turn out for our advantage. And so that's what we see here. We see the people who understand this. They understand that the dispersion, the persecution of that beautiful church in Jerusalem, they didn't throw up their hands and give up and say, I guess maybe whatever. They kept on in faith obeying Jesus. Commentary says, those that fled from persecution did not flee from their work, though for the time they declined suffering, yet they did not decline service. Nay, they threw themselves into a larger field of opportunity than before. Those that persecuted the preachers of the gospel hoped thereby to prevent their carrying it to the Gentile world, but it proved that they did but hasten it the sooner. 
So this type of flight is not a fearful flight. This was a faithful flight that they carried out. And there's a difference. Certainly they were aware that they might be killed if they stayed, but there was a faith that prompted them to understand it's time to go. And you'll see there were those that did not leave. So faithfulness was not defined by whether you stayed or left. Faithfulness was defined as whether you followed the Lord. Now, we also see here this concept of to the Jews first. The text says preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And so we know that Christ preached to the Jews first and his followers did the same. Just like Jesus said to them in the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it starts with the Jews. Jesus preached to the Jews. He also preached to the Gentiles. Remember crumbs off the table. But it was to the Jews first. But y'all, here's where the Jews of that time were so confused. It's not limited to the Jews. And also, you know, they were always prone to limit, limit, limit. It wasn't limited to the Jerusalem Jews. In other words, those Jews born and trained up in Jerusalem. It was the Hellenist Jews were also included. We saw that in Acts chapter 6, that the gospel had gone out to all kinds of Jews. Converted Hellenist Jews, that is Greek Jews, their primary language being Greek, not necessarily Hebrew, traveled to Antioch and shared the gospel with other Hellenist Jews there in Antioch. And it was a, a significant distinction between those whose primary tongue is Hebrew and those whose primary tongue is Greek. But they were all Jews together. And this was what you would see over time as Greeks, like Cornelius, Gentiles like Cornelius, would get through the proselytization process and they would be circumcised and they would become Jews. And they would join into the life of Judaism over, over time. So you've got these two different populations. The commentary says they preached the word to none but to the Jews only who were dispersed in all those parts and had synagogues of their own in which they met with them by themselves and preached to them. They did not yet understand that the Gentiles were to be fellow heirs and of the same body. And so the kind of preaching that took place was the same kind of preaching that Peter had done to the Jews first. And so they needed to be awakened still that you could preach directly to the Gentiles and they could come directly into the kingdom and not have to become Jews first. And recall the zealots, right, the Jewish zealots, who would persecute Jews who did not keep the dietary laws, did not keep the Jewish traditions. And so if you became a Christian, that meant that you were going to be liable to the persecution of the zealots. So it's a very practical reason why a lot of Jews who became Christians didn't want this to be true about the Gentiles. They wanted the Gentiles to get circumcised first, keep the dietary laws, avoid the persecution of the zealots. And Paul talks about that in Galatians, which as we discussed last week, was written shortly before the Jerusalem 15 Acts, Jerusalem Acts 15 Council, where this heresy is still flaming forth. Critical it had to be put down. So, <clears throat> the Hellenist Jews go and they've come to Antioch. Now, they're not from Antioch, but they go there, they're drawn there for some reason. And the commentary tells us they particularly applied themselves while they were there at Antioch to the Hellenist Jews, here called the Grecians, that were at Antioch. 
Many of the preachers were natives of Judea and Jerusalem, but some of them were by birth of Cyprus and Cyrene, as Barnabas himself and Simon. So Barnabas was from Cyprus. And of course, there's Simon the Cyrenian, we've heard of him in Mark 15. But they had their education in Jerusalem. And these, being themselves Grecian Jews, had a particular concern for those of their own denomination and distinction and applied this, themselves closely to them at Antioch. So there would have been a greater sense of cultural kindredness between those like Barnabas. And it's probably part of the reason why Barnabas was chosen by the church at Jerusalem to go there and to minister to them. Now let's note what they preached. And this is really important. Really, really important. They preached the Lord Jesus. Now there's a lot of things that we talk about in sermons. And all of it had better be in the context of preaching the Lord Jesus. And that's what they did. This is a summary of preaching's focus. This is what preaching should be all about. The Lord Jesus Christ. Caught up in Christ's kingdom. Think, think about those people then. What were they? They were caught up in Christ's kingdom. They'd been dispersed. They'd been sent out. They kept on with him, believing that he had lived this perfect life, died this sacrificial death, been raised from the dead, believing he had ascended, flown up, disappeared in the clouds, been seated at, right hand, at God's right hand, believing the great power had been poured out at Pentecost like never before, believing that he was transforming the world. They believed in him. They trusted in him. They believed their sins had been forgiven because of him and his death, and they had repented and come to follow him. They believed this. Caught up in this, doing his work, preaching his name, what happens? Well, the church we see in this is strengthened. The church grows. So when they went there, they preached the Lord Jesus. All the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ they preached to those people. And this was the constant subject of their preaching. What else should the ministers of Christ preach but Christ? Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him glorified. Christ and Him reigning. Christ and Him destroying His enemies. Christ and Him bringing this world under His reign. Christ. That's what we preach. And that's what they preached. And that's what God used to bring conversions to souls. Is the beautiful glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't want to get away from that, do we? We do not want to get away from that. We want to stay with Christ. And we'll see this is exactly what Barnabas does, the description of his ministry when we get to it. Now, what is the source of this great work? We're told the source is the hand of the Lord. Okay, and so by God's inspiration, Luke continues to take us back to this. So you've got all of these people dispersed, cast all over the world, still being faithful and working hard and probably exposing themselves to all the dangers of travels and unknown places. You can think of the threats they faced, and they just kept going. You might be tempted to say, wow, look what they did. That's what we want to do, right? We want to give them some credit, right? Now, but we're going to remember this phrase as one of the key points of today's sermon, even Barnabas. You see, what you want to do, what I want to do, is we want to put people on pedestals. We want to put people on pedestals and treat them like they are as sanctified and as pure 
as glorified saints. As if they're not still sinners. As if they're not still flawed. So that's an important thing that we see. It's the hand of the Lord. So the power is not in the persuasiveness or the diligence of these gospel evangelists, nor does conversion power rest within any person or flow from the tongue of any human mouth. Only the divine word of God, only the divine power of God can undo the shackles of sin and hell that rest upon the human soul. And so the text emphasizes that this is done by the hand of the Lord. You might think, well, we know that. No, we don't. We forget it. We need to hear it over and over and over again. This makes us praise Him. This makes us give Him thanks. This causes us to put our focus upon Him, not put people on pedestals, not look to other places, other people, other powers, but to look to Him. Stay focused on Him. The commentary says, the power of divine grace working on the hearts of the hearers and opening them as Lydia's heart was opened because many saw the miracles who were not converted. You hear that? Many saw the miracles who were not converted. So this hand of the Lord power that's being emphasized here is not primarily about miracles. It's about faith in the heart of the hearer. Back to the commentary. But when by the Spirit the understanding was enlightened and the will bowed to the gospel of Christ, that was a day of power in which volunteers were enlisted under the banner of the Lord Jesus. Did you mean it when you sang today during confession of sin, I crucified thee. This is what the Spirit does. Enlightening your soul to see who you are. Back to the commentary. The hand of the Lord was with them to bring that home, to bring this conviction of sin home to the hearts and consciences of men which they could but but speak to the outward ear. Then the word of the Lord gains its end when the hand of the Lord goes along with it to write it in their heart. Then people are brought to believe the report of the gospel when with it the arm of the Lord is revealed, when God teaches with a strong hand. These were not apostles, but ordinary ministers, yet they had the hand of the Lord with them. This should be our great desire, our great prayer for uh, the ministry of this church, the ministry of your life, the ministry of God's people in the earth, that the hand of the Lord would be with them. That we would preach Christ and that the hand of the Lord be with us. And as we'll see, that this fruitfulness would be real, that we would be called Christians. You know, we would be called Christians. Whether in derision <laughs> or whether in praise, as long as it's just true. So what happens here? Well, what happens is there's great number of converts. So these descriptions occur in this sequence and we see fruitfulness as a result of it. The Lord's Spirit accompanying the Lord's Word Unto the minds and hearts of the hearers will always bear fruit. There's always going to be fruit. God's word never returns void. Now, in this particular circumstance, the Lord blesses the hearing unto a great number of converts. And they'll be in heaven rejoicing. Now, sadly, there are souls who hear the word of God and the fruit is born in the fires of hell forever. Because they heard the word of God and they despised it. Word of God always bears fruit. And in this glorious situation, we see the fruit of faith, the fruit of belief, the fruit of forgiveness, the fruit of conversions. Unlike Simon the sorcerer, who it appears was an apostate, 
See, the word bore fruit in his life too. These here in Antioch look to be true converts based upon this description. What does it say about them? They believed and turned to the Lord. They believed and turned to the Lord. That's why I asked at the beginning, do you see the connection between faith and repentance? Faith and a life of faith. They always, true saving faith, always produces the fruit of a life of faith. Don't deceive yourself. If your life is not demonstrating the fruits of faith, the question you need to ask yourself, dear hearer, is am I a believer in Jesus Christ? So faith and repentance always, always travel together. Now, will we perfectly repent? No. <laughs> will we ever get it just right? No. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? But there will be change in our lives. So what is conversion? Well, it is faith and repentance. And that's what this text shows us and many others. And the combination, the combination of words here is believed and turned to the Lord. When the Lord works, when He, begin, when he works and He begins salvation in His elect, when God does this, He not only grants true faith in Christ, but He also grants the fruits, the growing fruits of faith. That seed of faith immediately begins to grow. It immediately begins to reveal itself. And this fruit of faith in this situation is called turned to the Lord. And that implies they turned away from that which is not the Lord, which is not of the Lord. Their true faith worked a change of direction, a change of focus, a change of goal in their souls and their actions. A turning away from self and the futilities of this world and a turning to Christ and His kingdom. A new way of thinking and living comes from believing in Christ. Commentary says they believed they were convinced of the truth of the gospel and subscribed to the record God had given in it concerning His Son. The effect and evidence of this was that they turned unto the Lord. They could not be said to turn from the service of idols, for they were Jews, worshippers of the true God only. They turned from worshipping God in show and ceremony to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I'll add, in a sense, if they were faithful Jews, it could simply be that they were turning away from the types of Christ and turning to everything that the sacrifices pointed to. They worshiped God in spirit and in truth. They turned to the Lord Jesus, and I'll add, as their Messiah, as the foretold Messiah. And He became all and all with them. See, all those sacrifices were dead, killed, Bloodshed, dead. They turned to the living Christ. And this was the work of conversion wrought upon them. And it must be wrought upon every one of us. It was the fruit of their faith. All that sincerely believe will turn to the Lord. All who sincerely believe will turn to the Lord. We all lean in a certain direction. Every one of us has an inclination of our being. And we incline our ear and our affections 
and our behaviors in a particular direction. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we turn to the Lord more and more each day. So what happens next? We've got this work of God through those who were dispersed but not dissuaded, preaching the Lord. The hand of the Lord is with them. And all this good is occurring there in Antioch. And what happens next? The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So first, note that good news spread to the church in Jerusalem. And of course, applied here is that not all were dispersed, not all left. So, some things to consider. Brothers and sisters, listen, we need to hear good news. Okay? We need to hear good news. The flow of news at that time, think about how they must have heard this. Think about what's implied, not directly stated. The flow of news at that time cared greatly about the state of God's church throughout the world. And any piece of news about God's church, think about it, is good news. Even even the worst kind of news you can imagine. If it's about God's church, it's good news. I mean, can you imagine the news that the disciples heard about Jesus being put to death on the cross on that dark day when he was in the tomb? But now we see it as the best news we could ever hear. And there can, can there be any greater, greater tragedy, greater horror than the Son of God himself being murdered? So any news of God's church is good news. And so priorities of news consumers, if we are Christians, thinking Christian thoughts, will determine the focus and work of those who provide the news. There's a message here for those who want to be journalists. Be a Christian journalist. Be a Christian seeker of news. This is an example of how all of life is to be transformed by our faith. We need a comprehensive revolution in journalism with the focus just like national priorities for foreign relations should be set around the gospel priorities of journalists should do the same we want to know what's going on with God's church in China in the small towns of New Guinea we want to know how the gospel is spreading in Venezuela we want to hear what Jesus is doing by the power of of His hand, and by the preaching of those dispersed today in God's world. That's the news we want. And look what they did with it. They they acted on it. They prayed. They saw their connection to it. This is what it means to be missional. We need good networks to be good missional churches. The news that matters most, brothers, brothers and sisters, is that concerning the state of God's church in the earth. Commentary says they heard the good news that the gospel was received at Antioch. The apostles there were inquisitive how the work went on in the countries about. 
and it is likely kept up a correspondence with all parts where preachers were, so that tidings of these things, of the great numbers that were converted at Antioch, soon came to the ears of the church that was in Jerusalem. Those that are in the most eminent stations in the church ought to concern themselves for those in the lower sphere. Anybody interested in journalism needs to mark texts like this and see that just like health care, no less than even gospel ministry, journalism belongs to the church. Journalism belongs to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And spreading news in the earth should be unto the purpose of the growth and the encouragement of the church of the living God. God, please free us from corrupt journalism. Next. And this means we have to stop consuming it. And that's a whole other conversation. I mean, we need to know the lies they're telling, but we need a whole new focus in journalism, brothers and sisters. And obviously, if we didn't live in the world that we live in today, it'd be unlikely that I'd be pressing this application home for us. Next. Note also that the Lord did not disperse all of his people from Jerusalem. I've mentioned this already. But instead, he chose to provide a haven for apostles, James the brother of Jesus, and other believers who would maintain Christian worship and witness in Jerusalem, and as we'll see in chapter 15, would be seen as very important, this church in Jerusalem, and its decisions regarding big church questions. So God preserves the church in Jerusalem for his purposes. Next, what do they do? They send Barnabas, and they tell him to go as far as Antioch, and that may mean that he went to all these other places that had been described, or that he just went directly to Antioch. It's not entirely clear. The suggestion is that he had traveled far and wide, encouraging the Hellenist Jews. So first of all, consider the sacrifice and the love of the Jerusalem church. I'm sure they prayed, I'm sure they rejoiced, but then they acted. And it doesn't appear at all as if it's some micromanagement scheme on their part. They want to bless. I mean, we have to say that so far Barnabas has been held up as the jewel of the church of Jerusalem. Right? They don't just sit around and polish their jewels. They send Barnabas. Think of this. He had proven himself of such great value and encouragement. He acted, he demonstrated the love of Christ in his behavior. So to send him on this journey of inquiry and encouragement must have been a very, very high priority to them. Not only the mission itself, to see to whom they entrusted the mission, but also their willingness to sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, let's note, local local assemblies must maintain an eye to how they can each serve and strengthen the church of God elsewhere in the world. So maintaining connection through news, through understanding what's going on, and seeking to participate in real-time service. And I think we have that to some degree by God's grace in our church. May he grant to us more of it. Next, also consider Barnabas' love for God's church. You see this great teamwork between the church and Barnabas. He was of one mind with the remainder of the Jerusalem church. There's no evidence he resisted this. Willing to leave behind, think about it, his known world and enter into the uncertainty of travel and new situations. Others knew it was time to leave. 
Others went immediately. Barnabas, I'm called to stay here. Oh, I need to go somewhere else for a time? Okay. So more praise and commendation for Barnabas. Commentary says they sent him forth as an envoy from them and as a representative of their whole body to congratulate them upon the success of the gospel among them as a matter of rejoicing both to preachers and hearers. And with both, they rejoiced. He must go as far as Antioch. It was a great way, but as far as it was, he was willing to undertake the journey for a public service. And so think of the encouragement there to the church at Antioch to receive such a one as Barnabas. And of course, he's a Hellenist Jew who's been converted. Now what happens when he gets there? See, one of the marks, listen now, one of the marks of being an encourager is the first thing you spot is the grace of God in someone's life. And you are glad. You are glad. Okay? That's the first thing. You don't put them on a pedestal. Right? It's not like you don't see that we're all sinners. But if you're an encourager, the first thing you spot is God's grace at work. Unlike how those of the circumcision responded to God's grace to Gentiles at Caesarea, remember? Barnabas' eyes, eye of faith first locked upon the divine grace at work amongst the people of Antioch. Brothers and sisters, let us all please take this to heart. Note this well. Beloved elect of God. You want to be like Barnabas? You want to be more like him? Pray this for yourself. Encouragers and for all of us. First notice the grace of God. And not just notice it and go, meh. But notice it and are glad. Notice it and are glad. That's what happened to Barnabas. And then, as a result, they move into strengthening the sparks of grace they perceive and trying to fan that flame into a bigger flame through their loving words. And this occurs long before they move into the downstream gracious work of correction. Correction is a part of our ministry to one another. We can't, we can't ignore that. But I'll tell you, you want to be a discourager? Go ahead and start correction prematurely. Go ahead and see what fruit that's going to bear in your relationships. God have mercy on me. I'm so guilty of this. You know, we discouragers in our flesh, I mean, it doesn't take any training from heaven to spot the failures of others. Right? May God deliver us from this, brothers and sisters. So, some corollaries here. Only grace alive in the heart makes one truly glad to see God's grace at work. You know, we're, we're commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice. I mean, why should we have to be commanded? It's pretty, because you know what we want to do? Well, okay, yeah, okay, you got a raise, that's fine, okay, that's good for him. That's what we, that's in our flesh, that's what we do. We don't rejoice when others are blessed. That's not what encouragers do. And Barnabas, look, he must increase and we must de- decrease. That was Barnabas' motto, I'm sure, John's, John the Baptist. This is what encouragers are all about, is Jesus being built up. And that means caring most about others being built up, others being edified. So only grace alive in the heart makes one truly glad to see God's grace at work. Don't think you're going to walk into a situation and note God's grace if you're not basking in God's grace. This is how you become an encourager who can see and edify grace perceived in others. Next, no divine work is necessary to be a critical person. 
right? So when you, when you drop, right? When, when you drop something, Newton's experiment, it falls down, right? It doesn't fly. So if we want to fly in this glory of encouragement, we have to be, we need miracles. We don't need any miracles to bring one another down. Nothing is required. Listen, you're not some gifted person if you're really good at spotting all the flaws in others. Okay? That, does not, that is not to be, don't see that as a strength in yourself. Okay? That's not a strength. That's just advanced fleshly living is all that is. Making all those lists of how all the people around you can do so much better and then, man, I'm going to help all these people change. Nope. That's not, that's not, see, look, learn from Barnabas. Let's learn from Barnabas, okay? So no divine work is necessary to be a critical person. Any fool can see the failures of others, and any fool can go on to believe that he or she can help others change through criticism, right? Now, now the beauty of it is the mature spiritual person can learn from the unspiritual critical fool, right? So remember something about learning from a donkey? in the Bible, right? But let's just not be donkeys to each other, okay? Let's be like Barnabas to one another. Next, commentary says, Barnabas was wonderfully pleased to find that the gospel got ground and that some of his countrymen, men of Cyprus, of which country he was, were instrumental in it. When he came and had seen the grace of God, the tokens of God's goodwill to the people of Antioch, and the evidences of God's good work among them, he was glad. He took time to make his observations, and not only in their public worship, but in their common conversations and in their families. He saw the grace of God among them. Where the grace of God is, it will be seen as the tree is known by its fruits, and where it is seen, it ought to be owned. What we see which is good in any, we must call God's grace in them, and give that grace the glory of it, and we ought ourselves to take the comfort of it and make it the matter of our rejoicing. We must be glad to see the grace of God in others and the more when we see it where we did not expect it. Let's exhaust ourselves rejoicing in God's grace and then learn how to, in that context of constantly rejoicing in His grace, learning to help one another see those areas in our lives where we need to experience God's grace. Where, where we perceive that God's grace is, is, is lacking in that spot. Let's be encouragers. All right, so what does Barnabas do? He encourages them all, we are told. Now listen to what the commentary says about Barnabas in this spot. This is Matthew Henry. He did what he could to fix them, to confirm those in the faith who were converted to the faith. He exhorted them. That word is also encouragement. can mean to bring comfort. It's the same word with that by which the name of Barnabas is interpreted. Son of exhortation, son of encouragement. So it's his name. His talent lay that way and he traded with it. He comforted or encouraged them with purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord. So that's what encouragers do. They look to the heart to encourage people to cleave, to go on cleaving, continuing with the Lord. The more he rejoiced in the beginning of the good work among them, the more in earnest he was with them to proceed according to these good beginnings. Those we have comfort in, we should exhort. Barnabas was glad for what he saw of the grace of God among them and therefore was the more earnest with them to persevere. 
So you see grace looks to the past, grace looks to the present, grace looks to the future. Encouragers see and are encouraged and they go on encouraging, strengthening. And here's the focus. First, with purpose of heart. With purpose of heart. So, encouragement doesn't go like this. Hey, listen, make sure you go to church, make sure you tithe, make sure you clean yourself up just right, make sure you don't drink or chew with girl, go with girls who do. Okay? That's not how encouragement works. Encouragement does not just give a list of rules to people. Encouragement just walk, doesn't just walk up to people and tell them what's wrong with them on the outside. See, encouragement looks to the heart and points to what Jesus has already done inside them. Right? And fans that flame. Encouragement always begins by feeding the heart, brothers and sisters. Oh, please let that sink in. When we are trying to help one another grow, it means we've observed grace in one of those lives, if we're encouragers, and we'll be able to state that to one another. I really see God's work in your life. Praise be to God. And you seek to fan that flame and give Him glory and strengthen their faith to believe that He will continue this good work. Barnabas brings home to their inner world this great reality of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What have they believed? They've believed the Gospel. He continues to talk to them about Jesus Christ and tell them who Jesus is and what He did and what He is doing in them. He seeks for them to be established with this enduring purpose within them. What is this enduring purpose? To be fixed on Christ. Focused upon Him. To build up their hearts to continue in that which they began. That's what encouragers do. We focus on Jesus and His greatness and His glory and His death and His suffering. And we contemplate what He endured on the cross. We contemplate His death. We contemplate His suffering. We think of His resurrection. We think of His ascension. We think of His glory. We ponder Christ together. That's what Barnabas did. He took them to Jesus to further establish their hearts in Christ. To do what? To cleave to Him with purpose of heart, with an intelligent, right? Accurate understanding, firm and deliberate resolution, founded upon good grounds and fixed upon that foundation. Look, remember we've talked about this. Be continually filled with the Spirit. Where does that happen? In the Word. In the Word. As we meditate upon who He is, and as we commune with Him in our understanding, and as we praise Him from our souls, our hearts are established in our faith. And what is he, what purpose is he trying to build in them to continue with the Lord? Don't go anywhere, don't go anywhere else. It wasn't just a great one night event with Jesus. That it wasn't just an emotional thing. It wasn't just a, a lot of happy, happy, happy. It was a real experience of communion with the triune God that is to continue all the days of your life. Continue with the Lord. Cleave to Jesus, is what Barnabas is saying to them. Cleave to this man in whom you have placed your faith to save you. Cleave to this man whom you believe reigns over all things. Cling to this man who is the divine second person of the Godhead. Cling to him. 
And this is the purpose that all encouragers seek to strengthen. All encouragers understand that what you want to accomplish is the other person focused on Jesus. Fixed on him. Fixed on what he has done. Considering who he is. Having begun with the Lord, continue with him. Having been forgiven, born again, and brought into his kingdom of life and light, now go on daily walking with this same Savior who is your Lord, whose wounds are visible above. Having been justified, forgiven, washed of your sins, go on now being sanctified. Go on now with him, learning of him, growing up in him. Surely, continuing with the Lord is that which makes us more like the Lord. So, that's why we're called disciples. Which means learners, followers of Jesus. That's why we're called Christians those following Jesus, those like Jesus. We continue with Him. Those that have turned to the Lord are concerned to cleave to the Lord. Not to fall off from following, not to flag, not to tire in following Him. To cleave to the Lord Jesus is to live a life of dependence upon Him and devotedness to Him. Not only to hold Him fast, but to hold fast by Him. To be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. You see, I know you're all thinking probably what I'm thinking. I can't hold on to him. It's okay. Keep squeezing. Keep squeezing. And you'll find that as your grip begins to fail, his never does. His never does. And, and he strengthens your grip. That's called faith. That grip I'm talking about is called faith. And I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but so often you just feel like giving up. Right? But what does faith do? Faith just keeps on in spite of wanting to give up. Do you think that that feeling of wanting to give up might go away someday? I don't know, maybe it will. Maybe it will. But, you know, that's, that's not, we're not called to feel that way and live that way and think that way. That's not Christian living. But it is a mark of our old man. It is a mark that you're in the battle. Continue with the Lord, brothers and sisters. Next. We see some more commendations for Barnabas. He's called a good man. His life reflected true goodness. It overflowed with good works from his heart. Purpose to continue with the Lord. So he's like trying to help others do what he's been doing. His heart is purposed upon continuing with the Lord. And he's called one who is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's how this is happening. How is he a good man? How is he doing these good works? It's not moralism. It's because Jesus dwells in him. Only by the continued filling with the Holy Spirit, whereby his faith is clinging to Jesus, is continually laying hold of Christ. Oh, he showed himself to be a man, the commentary says, of a very sweet, affable, courteous disposition that had himself the art of obliging and could teach others. He was not only a righteous man, but a good man, a good-tempered man, the kind of guy you enjoyed being around. This is what happens to encouragers. I don't care about your personality style. That's not what dis- determines ultimately whether you're enjoyable to be around. There's this aroma that comes forth from people like this. Ministers that, are, that so recommend themselves and their doctrine very much to the good opinion of those that are without. Ministers that are like this. He was a good man. He was charitable. He had approved himself. He had, a, he had sold that estate as we talked about and given the money to the poor. He was a good man. And he was very highly commended, we see in Acts 4. Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, 
which is translated son of encouragement. So he was such an encourager, the apostles renamed him. His given name was Joseph. He's a Levite. He's from Cyprus. He sold, he had land. He sold it and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So you see, encouragers encouraged by doing, encouraged by leading. But I want us to pause for a minute. And and like I said before, there's this phrase I hope sticks in your mind, even Barnabas. Um, Because we don't want to put human beings up on a pedestal. Let's take a warning. The power of people-pleasing, especially within the context of potential cultural and religious rejection. We've talked about this, the zealots, and what Barnabas would have faced. And I hope we'll see that this idea of cancel culture emerges from our human design to be accepted and safe within our friends and our family and our work and our life. We want all of these things to be stable. Even Barnabas fell prey to these same pressures. Even Barnabas, this good and wise and humble man, fell prey. Even Barnabas. Be warned, brothers and sisters. I mean, the message here is, if you think you can't be influenced by the cultural pressures around you, you are living in a fantasy land. And this should impact your approach to social media, to news, to everything. Your family should have a really good plan for this. Because if you think you're not being influenced by these things, you're living in a fantasy land. You're not living in reality about how easily we are influenced. Remember, even Barnabas. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2 about this. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that Say it with me. Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And I mean, Barnabas, you can see how beloved Barnabas is. What a good man he is, how respected he is that Paul, it's like, okay, we're not too surprised Peter got caught up in this. It's kind of the unstated message. But even Barnabas got taken away by this. And so, again, beware, beware, beware cultural influences in your life and in your family's life. And don't think that somehow you are immune to these things. So what happens as a result of this? Barnabas is gone. Even more conversions occur. He's gone. He's been an encourager. What happens? God is gracious to grant his people the joy of participating in his good work of expanding his kingdom in the world. Barnabas gets encouraged himself. It doesn't always happen, you know. He may have gone some places where there was not a lot of faith. So Barnabas the encourager is encouraged. I think we all know, we have to say this, the Lord does not always bring great, rapid growth of His church. He doesn't always do that via the work of His saints. So don't think that just because maybe you've never seen this or experienced this that you're not being faithful to the Lord. That would be an unbalanced interpretation, a false interpretation of this text, to say that if you're faithful like this, you'll always see rapid church growth like this. That's not the case. But, we can say this. The Lord is working in His people who have faith in Him and who are participating in His means of grace. He is working in them. And so, He is always gracious to grant us tokens of grace along the path of serving Him in this life. You will see 
tokens of grace in your own life and in the lives of those around you as you are walking with the Lord. What happens? Barnabas and Saul teach in Antioch for a year. So this great thing has happened as Barnabas has come. And the Luke, Luke wants us to see the importance of this. He's not relying on himself. We're learning more of Barnabas. He departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. I want us to see the wisdom and the commitment and the humility of Barnabas to leave what was happening. He had to leave, right? Well, what if I leave? I mean, they're really dependent upon me. I need to stay because look what I've done. It's God's work. Barnabas knows it. He knows that more teachers are needed. More people who know God's word. Because what was their Bible at that time? The Old Testament. And who did he know that had come to Christ who really knew God's word? Saul. So he goes and gets him. So note the wisdom to figure this out. His commitment, he does it himself. And his humility. They can do without me here. To go and get Saul from Tarsus. To search for him. To bring him back. It says he found him. That means he searched for him. It's not like he knew exactly where he was in Tarsus anymore. So he needs the help. He admits it. He's humble. He engages his own time and his own effort to go. I mean, this, think about this. You saw where this is. It's not a super long travel from Antioch to Tarsus. But it's not right next door. Let us all consider the work of Barnabas as we study the book of Acts. It's one of the, I think, big key themes for, for you when you're studying the book of Acts. Consider Barnabas. What would the church at that time have looked like without Barnabas and those like him? It's a major message to us of what we need for church growth. The centrality, this is the lesson, the centrality of encouragement to church health and church growth. I'm going to skip that particular quote from the commentary and go to the next section about Barnabas and Saul together for a whole year. I want us to note the two things that they did while they were there. And this is an emphasis upon the common, the ordinary means of grace. What did they do first? Well, they pitched a bunch of tents and had a huge revival and a bunch of barbecues and a bunch of outreach efforts. I mean, maybe they brought in a celebrity preacher, if you consider Saul that, I don't know. But brothers and sisters, what they did is they just kept up with the ordinary means of grace. That's what Saul and Barnabas did together with the saints at Antioch for a year. First, they assembled with the church. Not only the Lord's Day gatherings, but all the gatherings of the church at Antioch. They were with that church going in and out amongst them. Barnabas and Saul joined in with all the worship and the life of that, of that church. Commentary says, The church frequently assembled. The religious assemblies of Christians are appointed by Christ for His honor and the comfort and benefit of his disciples. So part of the application here is don't fool yourself into thinking that you're going to grow up in the Lord if you're not assembling together with his saints that you are called to assemble with. Next. What happened next? They taught a great many people. We see the assembly, which looks to the worship and the fellowship of the saints, but we see that the word of God must be central to all the gatherings of the saints of the people of God. Not only did they join in the worship and the life fellowship of the church, but they also took up their calling to teach and preach. Not only in the context of Christian worship, which is what's happening now, 
but all the time. Teaching, preaching, lifting up the Word of God was the life of this church. And it should be the life of every healthy church. Worship, preaching, fellowship, the ordinary means of grace. Barnabas and Saul joined with that church, joining with them in the ordinary means of grace within that covenant community for a whole year. They joined in with purpose of heart, and I think it was probably Barnabas's initial thing that was still happening. They wanted to encourage them. They wanted to establish them. They wanted to strengthen them. Continuing on with the Lord, growing more and more like Christ each day, establishing them more and more, growing them up more and more into Christ-likeness. That's what they wanted to do. And we'll see the fruits of this later is that these people came to understand that Barnabas and Saul are good at this. Let's send them to go do this elsewhere. And the Holy Spirit moved in their midst to show that to them. So what's the fruit of this? It's easy to miss, but it's a beautiful thing. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So brothers... Brothers and sisters, what's the fruit in our lives of the ordinary means of grace, of worship, preaching, fellowship? We're first called Christians. So we become like Christ. We follow Him. We do cleave to Him. That's what happens. We cleave to Him and we become like Him. But you know what? In our fast food, microwave, Instagram, Facebook, Instant info, Twitter world. Remember, I told you how easily influenced we are. We can easily come to despise the ordinary means of grace God has given to us. We can easily come to despise that. You know, trees take a while to grow. Vines take a while to grow. And yeah, when the fruit comes, it's pretty explosive and quick. But that did not happen overnight. Let us be at peace and grateful. Oh, brothers and sisters. Oh, elect, beloved of God. Let us be grateful for and content with God's ordinary means of grace in our lives. This Christian word means a follower of Christ or one like Christ. And hear Jesus' words. Luke 6. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Who is our teacher when we are in faith, embracing and living in and living out the ordinary means of grace? Who is our teacher? Is it the Father, ultimately? Not really. Is it your pastor, ultimately? No. In his great kindness to us, God, has ordained these means of grace. And we, when we embrace them by faith, we are learning from Jesus himself. What does that mean? That means we can be called Christians. You can be called a Christian. People will look at you and that's what they will think about you. So let us be called Christians, whether it be, like I've said, in praise or in derision, whether it's true Assuming it's true, we don't really care whether it's in praise or in derision, right? Walking with Him together, becoming like Him together, remembering the simplicity of our life together in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that You make 
whatever evils you send on us to turn out for our good. We thank you, Lord, that as you plant true faith in us, you grant to us the fruits of faith as we grow up in trusting you and obeying you. We thank you for this, Lord. Oh, we praise you, Father, for your presence with us, in us, and through us, teaching us in the ordinary means of grace as we draw together and worship you, as we enjoy the bread and the wine and the water of baptism, and as we grow up in faith, encouraging one another, working together, fellowshipping in Christ together. Thank you, O God, for your word that comes to us in teaching, in preaching, in conversation. Oh, bless us to be such people as those at Antioch. O God, that we would be called Christians. In Jesus' name.